Evening, everyone. Fantastic, fantastic to be here. Uh, Happy New Year's Eve. And um, doesn't doesn't that look absolutely fantastic? What a fabulous artwork that is for our new summer series coming up. Please have Revelation um, open before you because we're going to keep looking at that passage. And uh, let's pray together as we get into God's Word. Oh, Father, we thank you for the year that we've just had. Uh, We thank you for all the things that you've taught us and for all the ways that you've grown us. Uh, We thank you for your word and for prayer which sustain us. We thank you for the fellowship and love of your people here that you've provided for us. And Father, as we enter a new year, please help us to do so with clarity, uh, with purpose, uh, to know what we're on about and why. And we ask this evening you'd equip us in that way. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, a bunch of years ago now, I read a book called Hot Tub Christianity. In Australia, we'd call it Spa Christianity, but it was an American book, Hot Tub Christianity. And it's a weird title, um, but it's written by a guy called J.I. Packer, and he's, he's, he's awesome. And so I thought, I'm going to give this um, a read, and it was a great book. Um, Hot Tub Christianity, um, the idea behind it is that many Christians have a version of Christianity that's like relaxing in a spa. They see Christianity as being about um, being warm, relaxed, Chilling, drink in hand, a relaxed kind of Christianity. And what Packer writes in this book is he says, no, that's not Christianity at all. A warm, relaxed, no worries, doing it easy, chilling type Christianity, that's not Christianity at all, says Packer. Now, some Christians might push back and say, come on, Packer, why are you so serious? Why don't you just chill out, calm down a little bit? Christianity is meant to be about uh, being inspired and being together with friends and uh, having God make my life better so it's more pleasurable and more blessed. And that's what church leaders are to be about too. They're meant to be about making my life better, helping me understand God so my life can be better, and about helping me have friends, and about me being inspired. Now, I love a good spa, but as you read that letter to the church in Sardis in the book of Revelation, it doesn't sound like spa Christianity to me, does it to you? It shouts to us, take your Christian life seriously. To give us a real contrast to spa Christianity, that view of the Christian life, let me tell you a little story. And it's a fictional story, but it's historical fiction, you know, based on true events. Whenever it comes up on, uh, on a movie based on true events, my wife Megan goes, oh, this is going to be good. Are you like that? Based on true events. Well, this is based on true events. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's historical in the sense that it's about the city of Sardis, the ancient city. And actually, you're the main character. Now, if you're a girl, you've got to be a boy for this, okay? But you're the main character. So here we go. Let's see if we can do this. It had been late when sleep finally came to you. You'd been thinking about your farm, your wife, your two girls, your young son. Thinking of days without war and longing for a time in the future where you'd farm your land and raise your family in peace. This war with the Persians must be won or Sardis would come under Persian rule. There'd been battles outside the city, but now Sardis itself had been besieged. And so you, with the rest of the men of the surrounding regions and city, had been conscripted into the army. And so you spend your days and your nights away from your family, doing the work of a soldier within the besieged city of Sardis. As you drifted off to sleep, you'd sunk into dreams of family and happy times, memories, a dream world that was safe and warm. Trumpets and shouting shatter your dreams in the early hours of the morning, drawing you to full wakefulness immediately. It's dark, probably an hour before the dawn. Trumpets are blaring, people are screaming, the sounds of battle can be heard. Close, close, not outside the city walls, but within the city itself. How could this be? 
Others in your tent are rising, confused, dressing, arming themselves. What's happening? You yell to no one in particular as you rush to buckle on your scant armour. The Persians, they're over the walls, in the city. The gates are opened, responds the commander responsible for your troop. But how? They came up the wall. No, you think. No, that's impossible. You know the wall that the commander refers to. It's a sheer cliff face, almost perpendicular, unclimbable. How had they made it up the wall? It was the one place that felt totally impenetrable. What happened to the watch on the wall? Didn't anyone see them, you ask? We didn't post a watch. No watch? We didn't think we needed a watch on the wall. By now you're ready. You push with others towards the flap of the tent. Coming out into the cool night air, you see the city spread out before you. Fires roar in every direction, consuming large portions of the city. Bands of soldiers from Sardis clash with far greater numbers of Persians, well-organised, well-commanded, well-prepared, not woken from sleep just moments before. You know in that first instant as you emerge from the tent that the city is lost and that almost certainly you will be lost along with it. You raise your sword and in desperation scream a battle cry as you charge with a band of others into a line of Persians. Your last thought as you rush towards your death is, no watch. Now, that's quite a contrast to chilling in a spa, isn't it? A serious story about battles and war and failing to sound the alarm and so being destroyed. And if someone just suggests this is more the tone of the Christian life, you might think, come on, that's a bit alarmist. That's a bit serious, isn't it? Why don't you just chill out, Graham? Calm down. See, what is to be the tone of the Christian life and Christian ministry? Is it more to be more like chilling in a spa together, relaxing and enjoying life? Or like we're at war and we need to keep watch or the enemy will take the city and we'll be lost? Well, one sounds much nicer and more fun, but which is true? Well, that story I told you, that historical fiction, while taking a fair bit of poetic license, is actually from the history of Sardis. The city of Sardis was built in an elevated position, uh, high up, and on one side there was a, a, a nearly perpendicular wall, virtually a cliff. And so on that side of the city, uh, the, the, it felt impenetrable. It felt like no one could ever possibly scale this wall. And so it felt like you don't need to post a guard on this wall, and if you do need to post a guard, you don't need to look very carefully. But twice in the history of the city of Sardis, the city was taken because the watch failed to pay attention and noticed the enemy was scaling the wall. Happened in 549 BC when the Persians, led by King Cyrus, sent people up the seemingly impenetrable wall. Apparently they were watching and someone within the city, a soldier on the wall in Sardis, dropped their helmet and they scaled down, picked it up, scaled back up and the Persians watched sent people the same way up the wall, opened the gates, the city was lost. Happened again in 216 BC when the Seleucids, led by Antiochus the Great, laid siege to the city and a bloke called Logarus did the same thing. He spotted a way up the wall, climbed up with a band of 15 men, opened the gates and the city was taken. And the letter to the church in Sardis in Revelation has this history in its background. The letter is saying that what happened to the city of Sardis physically can happen to you as a church. No watch, a city falls. No watch, a Christian falls. No watch, a church falls. And so the big thrust of this little letter is keep watch, be vigilant, take your Christian life seriously. The letter splits into three main parts, rebuke, warning, encouragement. 
And each part is like sounding a warning bell, an alarm for complacent Christians. Rebuke, clang, clang, clang. Warning, clang, clang, clang. And even to some extent, the encouragement rings the bell as well. So firstly, a heavy heavy rebuke. Look with me at verse 1. To the angel in the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars of God, uh, spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Right from the very beginning of the letter, Jesus speaks to them in the very strongest of words, a heavy, heavy rebuke. And it's interesting to note that this breaks the pattern of the majority of the other seven letters that are in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. There's seven little letters there. And almost all of those letters start with praise before they get to any sort of rebuke or warning. But not here, not Sardis. Jesus has very little good to say about the church of Sardis. It's one of the most severe rebukes to any of these seven churches, perhaps with the exception of Laodicea. In verse 4, we see that only a small group are exempt from Jesus' rebuke to this church. And so the letter is a strong rebuke to a largely complacent church that's been chilling in the spa too long. And the warning, it says here, comes from Jesus, who is introduced as the one who holds in his hand the seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold spirit of God, the fullness of the spirit of God, and who holds in his hands the seven stars, which we learn in chapter 1, The stars represent the angels of the seven churches, the messengers of the seven churches, which could be angelic beings or it could be the leaders, the elders of those churches. But either way, it's clear. The picture is Jesus held in his hand the fullness of the Spirit by which he ministers to his churches through his messengers. Do you see? Jesus holds the very life of this church in his hand. Life to keep it safe, life to... uh, life holding it to could cast it away and this mighty jesus with the power of either protection or destruction over this church says i know your deeds now they're frightening words aren't they i know your deeds says the lord jesus there are no secrets from the lord he knows you he knows everything about you he knows all that you've ever done he knows every thought that goes through your mind He knows the deepest desires and motives of your heart. You might hide your sin and wrong from every other person, but not the Lord. He knows. He sees into the very heart of things. And what Jesus knows about this church, it's not good. He says to them, you've got a reputation for being alive, but I know you. You're dead. The flaming eyes of the glorified Jesus pierce through externals and appearances to see things the way they truly are. And Sardis, though it has a reputation for being alive, according to Jesus, is actually spiritually dead. Imagine this. You're a member of the church of Sardis. And a messenger comes saying, I have a letter for this church from the Lord Jesus. John received it in a vision directly from Jesus and now this letter is directly for you, addresses you as a church. And so you gather together as a church. Imagine that. A letter from Jesus directly directly towards EV Church. You gather together and someone gets up to read the letter. You're excited. What's Jesus going to say? And some of the first words you hear are, you've got a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Everyone on the outside looks at your church and thinks, what a great church. Wow, I wish our church was more like that. Look how big that church is. Look how they really love Jesus in that church. Man, I wish we could be more like them. And yet the piercing eyes of Jesus see to the very heart of things and he says, you're dead. (laughs) 
And it doesn't matter what everyone else says about your church or thinks about church or thinks about you. It only matters what the Lord Jesus thinks. The believers in Sardis had established a name for themselves in the community, that they were a vibrant Christian church, had established a reputation amongst other Christians and other churches, but in God's sight, dead. Can you imagine that? That you could actually live with this reputation with all around you that everyone thinks you're a, you're a good, good Christian. <laughs> you have a vibrant connection to God. You're really living the Christian life. And yet, you're not really connected to Jesus. There's no real life flowing through your veins. You don't really love him as you claim to you. You're not really living to honour him, actually spiritually dead. Like some fruit. Uh, my favourite fruit, cherries. Cherry, cherries are the best fruit. I'll fight anyone who disagrees. Cherries, I think, are the best fruit. And this is a great season for cherries, by the way. So make sure you get your cherries. But second best fruit is mango. Uh, you know when there's that mango that's not quite ripe and you've been watching it for a few days and you're just looking forward to really eating that tasty mango and it's sitting on the table there and it's, it's sweet, it's, tasty, it's crying out to you, eat me, eat me, sweet nectar of heaven. And then comes the day. And you pull out the mango and you, and you start to peel the skin off and stink, rot. Well, imagine if I could peel your skin back and see what was underneath, metaphorically. Imagine if I could sp- peel your skin back and see what's underneath. Spiritual life, vibrance, health, or rot, death, decay. Imagine if you could peel a church's skin back. What would you see underneath? Life and health or rot and decay? This challenge is a challenge for churches. This challenge is a challenge for individuals. What would be seen under your skin? Life, vibrance, health, rot, death, decay, or a mixed bag? Uh, Spotty, rotty. Uh, Spotty, rotty. I don't want to be that. But how would you know if you or your church were dead? Well, verse 2. Wake up. Strengthen what remains is about to die. For I've found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. I've found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. The deeds that God requires of them as a response to the salvation that they've received in Jesus have been left unfinished. Their godly living and good works have just shriveled up. Their service and love of God's people have petered out and dwindled. And you can tell that a plant is dead because it no longer bears any fruit. The fruit shows life. No fruit shows death. And that's them. Do you remember the terrifying words of the Lord Jesus when he says, Many, many will say to me on that last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and perform many miracles? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. Because, Jesus says, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of God. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of God. People may seem like they're spiritually alive, But if they don't do the things that God wants them to do, they actually show themselves to be spiritually dead. If people just generally live how they want to live without regard for the Lord as their king, then they should be, we should be very concerned for them. That's very dangerous. Because the person who truly trusts Jesus as Lord and Saviour will go on in a life of trusting him, which is a life of growing in obedience to him. The person who is truly connected to Jesus, the vine, has the lifeblood of the vine flowing through them, which will produce fruit, good deeds, loving service, deeds brought to completion, a life that does the will of God, what he wants. Not perfectly, 
failing in many ways, turning back to God, seeking his forgiveness, knowing his forgiveness, but moving in the direction of growing in fruitfulness and faithfulness out of a connection to Jesus. It'll look like growing in love for the word of our Father to us, growing in prayerfulness, growing in love and service and honouring of our Lord, in kingdom-mindedness and kingdom-hardness, so we love the kingdom of the Lord rather than our little kingdoms. We love his work rather than our work. Growing in sacrifice for God's cause, in holiness and putting sin to death, in Christ-like character. I know this bloke who seemed like an awesome Christian guy. In fact, that's exactly how I would have described him. He is an awesome Christian guy. He was a leader in many things in his church. He seemed to have a godly Christian character. He seemed to be um, a wonderful, godly Christian man. But under the surface, and it's always hard to know what's going under the surface, but I think what was going under, under the surface for him was this. While the things that God wanted for him aligned with what he wanted for him, everything was great. He just moved in the direction that God wanted because it seemed like he wanted what God wanted, but it was just what he wanted which aligned with what God wanted, if that makes sense. It was great until he started to want other things than the things God wanted, other experiences, uh, other ways of living, other approaches to life. And when that started to happen, he chose his way rather than God's way, his way rather than God's way, his way rather than God's way. And so very slowly at first, but very quickly soon after, he deviated and moved away from God and what God wanted for his life. And eventually, the gap had widened so much, he left God behind entirely. He left the Lord Jesus and turned his back on him and said, I don't believe it anymore, which is very convenient because it let him just go and do what he wanted to do. Increasingly, his deeds were unfinished in the sight of God. Less and less fruit, less and less obedience, less and less loving service for God's people until all that was left was he is clearly spiritually dead. And frighteningly, it's possible to be in church all your life and to have a reputation with those around you that you are spiritually alive, but you're not. And so it's worth thinking, is that possibly me? Because if you hear this warning and there's nothing that inside you that goes, could that be me? Could that be me, Lord? Perhaps you should be concerned because... When we're unconcerned about whether we're personally spiritually alive, it's often the case that we are in danger or are not spiritually alive at all. Now, this is a heavy rebuke, isn't it? (laughs) This is not hot tub Christianity here. Jesus is saying, take your Christian life seriously. Let me ring the alarm bell. Well, the heavy rebuke is followed by a serious warning, which rings the alarm again. There's a thin ray of hope for the church in Sardis. Even in the midst of one of the most condemning letters in Revelation, it says in verse 2 this, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Wake up. There's still the possibility of turning around. Though the church of Sardis has been described as dead, and in some sense is, here it says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Though described as dead, in some sense, there's still maybe some breath left in their lungs. There's still a faint pulse. There's still one more opportunity for them to come back and return to the Lord and be okay. Jesus, in his great grace and mercy, has given them one final opportunity to repent. And the big call of Jesus to the church of Sardis is this, wake up, or more literally, keep watch. 
They've been sleeping. They've been feeling secure in their position and they've let their guards slip and just become slack as a church. Stop being vigilant. Stop guarding their Christian lives. Stop guarding against spiritual deadness and slipped into complacency and compromise and failing to bear fruit. And remember the history of Sardis. On one side, a nearly perpendicular wall that felt impenetrable. And so they either failed to place a guard or the guard that they placed there failed to keep watch as they should. And so the enemy scaled the wall, opened the gates, took the city and it was lost twice. Thought they were secure and so failed to remain alert and watchful and in the end disaster. The church in Sardis is doing exactly the same thing. Thinking they are secure, failing to keep a watch over their spiritual state and unless they repent, it's going to end in disaster. They've been chilling in the spa so long that they've drifted off to sleep. And do you remember when we did uh, Corinthians uh, recently, the Apostle Paul said, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You think you're standing firm, be careful. Oh, the wall's secure. We're okay. We don't need a watch. Be careful. My Christian life's okay. I don't need to be... Be careful. The Puritans used to call their personal devotional times, Bible reading and prayer times, quiet times, the self-watch. Now, there's something very helpful in that, isn't there? The self-watch. That time as you read the Word and let the Word impact upon your life is a time to help you take stock of your Christian walk. A self-watch. Have you set a self-watch over your Christian life? Have we set a church watch over our church? Because you know that's one of the big things that pastors are set aside to do. But in some measure, we all bear the responsibility to keep watch for each other and guard over each other's spiritual state. So can I encourage you, keep watch, remain alert, don't become complacent, don't think you couldn't fall, don't be content with just having a reputation with your friends and those around you that you're spiritually alive. If you're not really bearing fruit, set a guard over your Christian life. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember the Wiggles. People seen the Wiggles these days? No. <laughs> yes. Okay. Remember, remember Jeff? I, Jeff, I don't know what's going on with Jeff, but Jeff has, had always had a hard night out partying or he was a, had narcolepsy. I don't really know what was going on. But at regular intervals, the Wiggles would call the audience to shout, Wake, wake up, Jeff! And Jeff had wake up, which was good because he didn't hurt himself or do something silly. Now, we need that. We need that at regular intervals. Wake up, Graham. Wake up. Switch back on in your Christian life. I need people to say that to me. We need to be saying that to each other. We need the preaching of God's word by the leaders of God's people to say, wake up, guys. Wake up, guys. Not all the time, but from time to time. And so Jesus says to the church, he says, wake up. Strengthen what remains is about to die. There's an ember still there that can be blown on and flammed into flame and fed until it becomes a raging fire again. How? Verse 3. Remember therefore what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. Remember what you have received and heard. That's the gospel. Hold it fast and repent. Remember, not in the sense of, I forgot. What's the gospel again? How does the gospel go? No, no. Remember in the sense of, bear it in mind. Bring it to the center of your thoughts and your life. Remember the gospel. Hold it fast. It's the most precious thing you have. The message that Jesus saves us when we receive him by faith. Don't let it go. 
hold it fast. Keep your trust in the gospel and Jesus. Remember the gospel, hold it fast and repent, which means turn back, reorient your life, turn your whole life, your mind back to God, your heart back to God, your living back to God. You're going away from God and his ways, repent. Turn back towards God and come back to him under his rule. Once when I was on my P-plates, I was driving through uh, the city in Sydney with a car full of mates, and we were lost. We'd been driving for ages, and I didn't know where I was going, and so we're driving down all these uh, one-way, cramped streets, and there were pedestrians, and there were people on bikes, and there were all sorts of cars, and it was quite stressful. But then I pulled into this three-lane, one-way street, and I thought, why aren't all the streets like this? This is, this is awesome, a three-lane, one-way street. I could... I could move from lane to lane, I could go anywhere I wanted. It was far more relaxing. And so I was cruising for the first time in 20 minutes. And then in the distance I could see, ah, there's traffic ahead, three lanes full of traffic. And it seemed to be moving towards me. And sure enough, the three lanes of traffic were swiftly driving towards me. I was driving down a three-lane, one-way road the wrong way. Now, what did I do? Well, I saw the danger coming towards me. And I realised I'm going the wrong way. And so I chucked a Yui. That's repentance. You see, the way I'm going is heading away from God and towards disaster. I'm going the wrong way and you chuck a Yui. That's what it is to repent. I'm going to come back to you, God, and come under your rule and live your way. Jesus' call to the fruitless church attender is repent. Whether you're someone who is spiritually dead, that is, never truly been a Christian, Or whether you're someone who is withering and dying, a Christian whose faith is shriveling up, the cure is the same. Hear the gospel and repent. Heed the gospel. Christ is Lord. Come under his rule. And if you come under his rule, he has made the way for you to be forgiven by dying and rising again so that you can be right with him. So come back under the rule of Jesus and he will totally forgive you all your sin. For the church of Sardis, there's this thin ray of hope and there may be for you. Strengthen what remains is about to die, says the risen Lord Jesus, by letting the gospel again be central to how you think and live, by holding it fast and by repenting, turning back to live under the rule of Jesus again. Because if Silas doesn't, the end of verse 3, but if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know what time I come to you. Jesus will come, they'll be unaware because they're sleeping, And like a thief, it'll end badly for them. The imagery of the thief is often used of Jesus' end time return, his second coming where he'll come to judge the world. And it may mean that here, but I think it's probably describing something Jesus will do sooner to the church of Sardis. He'll remove the church of Sardis, a judgment that will come in this age. But whatever form the judgment will take, all will be lost if they don't repent before he comes like a thief with them sleeping. Will the church of Sardis repent or will they slip into spiritual death and the just condemnation of the one who holds all things in his mighty hand now again this is inspired christianity here is it jesus calls us to take repentance seriously rings the alarm bell for us well the heavy rebuke and the serious warning is wonderfully followed by hope-filled encouragement but even the encouragement though joyful though victorious has a seriousness about it sounds the alarm bell again have a look with me at verse 4 Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. 
This is encouragement for the few who are still faithful. Because though many in the church of Sardis, though they have a reputation for being alive and yet are dead, not all are dead. Though there are many found by Jesus to have their deeds unfinished in the sight of God, not all have been. Though there are many who have soiled their clothes, not everyone has. There are some, Jesus says, who are worthy, who have clean clothes. Now that's a powerful description, isn't it? Who have not soiled their clothes, who have not gone into sin and muck, who have not spiritually compromised but continue to worship and obey God in faithfulness, who have not been contaminated and tainted by the world around them. Not perfect people, but people who are consistently repenting, turning back to God, receiving Jesus' forgiveness and pressing on in a life of growing and bearing fruit. And Jesus says, for these ones, they'll walk with me because they're worthy. Remember, Jesus walked physically with his disciples while he was on earth. He lived with them. They had an intimate relationship with him. Well, Jesus says for the faithful ones, they will walk with Jesus all this life and on into eternity in an intimate relationship with their Lord because they're worthy, which doesn't mean they deserve their position of being God's children. No, that's all by grace. We spent a whole term looking at that, saved by what Christ alone has done. But they're worthy in the sense that they've withstood compromise and not taken for granted their incredible position of God's children as God's children that Jesus has won for them but have sought to press on in obedience to Jesus and lived as the children they are. Think with me about marriage. Who who is the person who is pure and faithful and doesn't compromise their spouse, who who is clothed in white, who doesn't soil their clothes? What do they look like? Well, they don't flirt with others. They don't entertain in their mind the idea of another possible relationship than their relationship with their spouse. They build their marriage. They build by talking to each other and spending time together. They forgive and seek forgiveness when they've done wrong. They seek to change. A relationship of purity and faithfulness with a spouse looks something like that. Very similar to our spiritual life. If we're to be pure and not compromise um, in our worship to God, then we're not to be flirting with the false gods of our world with sex and money and power and comfort and success and not entertaining the possibility of sin in our mind but putting it to death, building into our relationship with the Lord, listening to him in his word, speaking to him in prayer, asking him for forgiveness when we've done wrong, seeking to change a relationship of purity and faithfulness with our God. And for those who do this, Well, in verse 5, Jesus gives a threefold promise for any who, like those few in Sardis, have remained faithful, who will be on their guard. This promise is for them. One, they'll be dressed in white, victorious over the world, clothed ready for heaven, pure and clean in God's sight because they've been washed by Jesus' death for them. Second part of the threefold promise, Jesus will never blot out their name from the book of life. That person's eternal future is secure. Their name will never be blotted out of the book of life, eternal hope. And three, Jesus will acknowledge their name before his Father and his angels. Do you remember Jesus' words in the gospel? Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me, doesn't want anything to do with me, doesn't want to be associated with me, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So too here. To be ashamed of Jesus in this age... To sit at a distance from Jesus in this age, he will be ashamed of you for all eternity. To be too cool for Jesus in this age will mean that he will be too cool for you for all eternity. 
To the victorious one, Jesus will acknowledge them before his Father and holy angels and welcome them to his eternal kingdom. And who is this person, this victorious person? Well, verse 2, remember? Remember the gospel. Hold it fast. Keep repenting of your sin. That's the person who's victorious. Just keep hanging on to Jesus, trusting him as your saviour, turning away from your sin, coming back to Jesus so that your life is a life that bears good fruit in an ongoing way. Now, these are wonderful, hope-filled encouragements to those who keep hold of Jesus. But they're serious still, aren't they? Their encouragements, these promises, only work because they promise it's worth the suffering now for the glory that awaits. It's worth remaining faithful to Jesus now and the gospel in this life, despite what it costs, because the future blessings are so great. Absolutely worth it. And so the hope-filled encouragements here are epic, wonderful, warm, but highlight again just how serious it is that we remain faithful to Jesus and bear fruit. And so again, as you come to the end of this letter, this isn't spa Christianity. Now, we have another year stretching out before us. Unless the Lord comes, wouldn't that be wonderful? But if he doesn't, we have another year stretching out before us. How will you live this year? Like you're chilling in a spa? Or like you're keeping watch on a city wall that's under siege? Think again of the church of Sardis. There was no real persecution. No real attacks from without. They had it pretty good. And there was no heresy from within. No major false teaching going on. Again, they had it pretty good. No persecution, no heresy, no attacks from without, no attacks from within. And so their risk was complacency, slackness, ease, failure to keep watch, failure to hold strongly to Jesus and the gospel and live a life bearing Christian fruit. And isn't that our risk too? We don't face persecution. Oh, yeah, it's harder than it was a decade ago, but not real persecution. There's no massive threat of heresy going on, although we're always fighting false teaching that's floating around the wider Christian world and threatens us. No, our big danger is slackness, complacency, restfulness, relaxedness, laziness, failure to keep watch, letting good deeds and godly living and loving service just dry up and letting our grip on the Lord Jesus and the gospel grow loose. And so verse 6, whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just touch the sides of your head. You got ears? Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Lord Jesus says to you, keep watch. Set a guard over your Christian life against slackness and complacency and laziness in the Christian life and becoming just like the world around us. Keep watch. Don't fall asleep. Let me just apply this a little more sharply as we come towards the end. Think with me about some of the things that might lull us to spiritual sleep and uh, cause us to fail to keep watchful. There's lots of places in the Bible that we could go, but do you remember Jesus' words in the parable of the sower, Luke 8 and a bunch of other Gospels? He's talking about the seed that falls among the thorns. And so the seed grows up and it looks like a good plant. It is a good plant. But alongside that plant, there grow all these thorny plants. And over time, the thorny plants take over and choke out the good plant and the good plant dies. And it's the person who looks like they've really put their trust in Jesus and are a Christian. And he's growing... But they let grow up alongside them a bunch of things from the world that actually choke the life out of them and kill their Christian life and take them out. Lull them to sleep so they're lost. 
And Jesus says those things, and I think this is very insightful. Jesus says those things, those plants that can choke the life out of a Christian are life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Wow, so insightful. Life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Now, as I think about my life, those are the very things that stop me being alert and focused on following Jesus. The things I'm worrying about all the time. The things, the, the, the money I want and the things I want to do with that money and the, how could I get more and the plans that I could... And pleasures. The things I want to do now for my pleasure or plan for my pleasure. Or, they're the sort of things. And the more you get switched on and wide awake to your worries, your money, your pleasure, the more sleepy you become to Jesus. The more focused and alert you become to your worries, money and pleasure the more sleepy and unalert and watchful you come to Jesus and hanging on to him. And instead become groggy, sleepy, complacent when it comes to Christian things. And at your age, let me tell you about two of the fastest ways out of following Jesus. One is an all-consuming career. It's at your age you start to move into a life where you could possibly have a really great job and really good options and it's one of the fastest ways out of Christianity if you just get sucked up into it and it becomes you, who you are, what you're about, the money it offers, the advancements. The, it can take you far away from church and Christian things. The second is the non-Christian girlfriend or boyfriend. Fastest way out of Christian things. Once in a million it turns out well. <laughs> Once in a million. One of the fastest way out. And so if, if you want to give Jesus the flick, get a non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. That'll, that'll really destroy your eternity for you. Let me finish by uh, telling you about a parenting fail of mine. Once when our kids were young, uh, we went for a Sydney holiday. Uh, it was great. Megan's parents were away. So we went down. We took over their um, place. Free accommodation. Fantastic. And so we did a bunch of fun Sydney things that, we, that you do when you have young kids because our kids were quite young. So go to the zoo, go to the aquarium. And one day we went to Homebush Olympic Pool. Because at Homebush Olympic Pool, there's all sorts of fun things for young kids to do. There's slides and a water park and all sorts of stuff. And so we had a great time. Towards the end of it, uh, we were getting a little bit cold. You know, the water's heated and warm, but let's get in the spa. And so we all got in the spa and, and we loved it. We just basked and basked and basked in the spa. It was great. Um, our youngest at that time, Tim, was about 15 months old and he was chilling in the spa with us and we had a great time. And then we jumped in the car, went on the way home and, and Tim just zonked. He was... He was totally out of it. We thought, that's cool. The little dude's had a really active morning. He, he's just sleeping. But then when we got where we were going back home, we tried to get him out of the car and he was sort of really limp and groggy and it was hard to wake him up. And we got him in the house and he was really hard to wake up. Tim, Tim, it's not time to sleep now. Wake up, wake up. And we put it all together. It was the spa. We cooked him. <laughs> we, we, we just totally dehydrated this little bloke. He was so dehydrated, he was struggling to keep awake. It was actually quite dangerous. And so for the next few hours, we just were keeping him awake and just getting water into him, getting fluid into him so he could you know, regain. That's what spas do to you. And they do it to adults as well. We just have much larger body mass. I don't know if you've ever been in a spa so long that once you get out, you think, oh, I just really need a nana nap right now because spas make you sleepy. You live the relaxed, chilling as a Christian type of Christianity for too long. The hot tub Christianity, focused on your worries, your money, your pleasures. Eventually you just fall asleep to Jesus altogether. And if you fail to repent, we'll be lost. And tonight, as you go out to whatever you're doing tonight, it's a night to practice living a watchful and faithful Christian life. 
I don't know what you're doing, but if you're heading out to New Year's Eve parties, you head out as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to honour him. Watchful, alert over your Christian life, godly, bearing fruit, faithful to Jesus, honouring him in all you do. And so as you come to think about drinking, alcohol, well, if you're under 18, don't drink, because that would be to disobey the law and so disobey our Lord Jesus, who says to obey the law. But if you're over 18 and you're thinking of drinking alcohol, you don't need to. Don't need to be cool like everyone else. But if you do, then think about how you do it. So you're self-controlled, not a hint of drunkenness amongst us. Have your limits, stick to it, don't drive if you've been drinking anything. Steer clear of drugs. How are you going to relate to the opposite sex? Relate in absolute purity and godliness and respect to one another. Tonight is a great night to just start practicing living the watchful, faithful Christian life. We have a new year stretching out before us. How am I going to live this new year? Like I'm chilling in a spa or like I'm keeping watch in a city under siege? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we look to the year ahead, uh, please be very gracious to us. Uh, Please let it be a year in which we are able to be alert and watchful, in which we're careful to hold strongly to Jesus and the gospel in which we repent of our sin and go on bearing fruit in the Christian life. Please protect us from relaxation and fruitlessness, from complacency and compromise, from unfaithfulness and impurity, from laziness and selfishness. Please enable us to take our Christian life seriously and to keep watch over it. And we ask all this in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.